I'm Gregory Berg. This week, the studios of WGTD are closed because of the holidays. So we are dipping into the archives for some of our favorite morning show interviews from earlier in 2021. Here's one of those favorite interviews, and I hope you enjoy it. And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm very happy to welcome into our studios today uh, Dr. Anthony Barnhart, who is Assistant Professor of Psychological Science at Carthage College and, on the side, an award-winning a professional magician. <laughs> and uh, I remember so vividly uh, the occasion at the start of, of uh, the, the new academic year several years ago when uh, most of the faculty gathers and new faculty are, are introduced to, to those of us who are already there. And I remember Anthony Barnhart's introduction so vividly and remember thinking, oh, my gosh, a psychology professor who's also a magician. <laughs> I have to get him on the morning show. And, and it's taken three long years. But at long last, Professor Barnhart is here. What precipitates this, uh, this visit to the morning show and what prompts it is uh, an event coming up at Carthage on the 21st of October, an annual event called Celebration of Mind. And uh, it's, it's an event in which uh, people are invited to listen to talk and then engage in sort of hands-on demonstrations to help understand the way the human mind works. And in particular, the way in which the human mind in all kinds of ways can be deceived and tricked. That's true. And uh, so it's 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 a it's a, a great event that I've heard a whole lot about. And as I said, the the next one, next celebration of mind is coming up on Saturday, October twenty first. So we want everybody to mark their calendars accordingly. And uh, we're actually hoping within the next uh, couple of weeks to have one of the special guests for this year's event joining us on the morning show as well. But in the meantime, for today's program, uh, Anthony Barnhart, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Gregory. Really happy to have you here. Uh, ahead of us talking about uh, all kinds of specific things, uh, let's get a little general sense of of where you come from originally, and in particular, uh, what sort of led you into this uh, discipline of psychological science. Is this something that's been of great interest to you for a long time? Sure. I uh, So I grew up in Illinois, uh, rural Illinois, uh, and around the age of seven, I became interested in magic in the same mm. way that many seven-year-old boys do. Yeah, uh, right. it's, it's a way to, to at least create the illusion that you have power in the world that you may not actually have. <laughs> uh, and uh, a, when you are uh, – when you're trained to deceive the mind, you become sort of – very intrigued by how easily people are deceived. It's a gateway toward interest in psychology. So mm. many magicians are uh, interested in popular psychology and read many psychology books and consider the same kinds of things that experimental psychologists are considering. So I think that was my my entryway into psychology. And uh, trying to have a career in entertainment is terrifying, <laughs> uh, just a little more terrifying than having a career in academia. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's interesting when you think about what, I mean, some magicians seem like just regular razzmatazz in the spotlight entertainers. Uh, but of course, a lot of what is involved in, in being a good magi- magician, I suppose, don't necessarily have anything to do with seizing the spotlight and being a ham and all of uh-huh. that kind of thing. It's it's just intriguing to think about what what's involved. Now, was ma- being a magician or doing magic uh, that 
remain an intense interest for you uh, straight through, or did it sort of ebb and flow? I, I mean, it, it ebbed and flowed. Uh, I was most active in magic when I was in high school. I was hmm. doing uh, probably over 100 shows a year wow. and and paid for the majority of my college experience uh, doing magic. Huh. Of course, things slowed down while I was in college and, and got – uh, new interests. I was musical while I was in college, among other things. Uh, and then I went to graduate school at Arizona State University. Uh, and that's when I kind of picked up magic again. I went to graduate school to be a language researcher. Uh, and I still have a hand in language research. But uh, while I was there, I started seeing scientists publishing work that used magic as a tool in the laboratory. And I thought, there's nothing special about me to study language. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not uniquely trained in language to study it, uh, but I have all this training in magic that might perfectly situate me to use it as a tool to study the mind and also to f- identify hypotheses from the world of magic that could uh, speed up our rate, rate of scientific discovery in psychological mm. science. So I started looking into the people who were the movers and shakers in this new movement, and I realized that two of them were just down the road from me at a place called Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix. Uh, so I reached out to them and told them who I was and what I was up to, and we established this long-term collaboration. They were in the, the early stages of writing a popular science book on the neuroscience of magic. And so I ended up being their magic teachers for a couple of years and, uh, and contributed some ideas to this book. And that was what springboarded me into making this a bigger part of what I do. And now I would say that about maybe 60% of the work that I do in the laboratory is either based on magic or uses magic as a tool. And the other 40% is is the language work that is harder for people to get excited about. <laughs> right. The, the non-magic in more ways than one. Very good. I want to make sure I get a, a, a question out of the way that uh, is relatively mundane compared to a lot of what we're going to talk about today. But uh, you are a assistant professor of psychological science versus what once upon a time would have been called probably a, an assistant professor of psychology. Mm-hmm. Just explain that distinction. Yeah, so um, I think if you if you grab a random person off the street and ask them what psychology is, they're probably not likely to invoke science or experiments. They're probably likely to say that, well, a psychologist is someone who helps people who have mental health issues. And that is certainly a part of psychology, but that's one small-ish part of psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, much of psychology today is really focused on uh, gaining a scientific understanding of the mind mind and behavior. Uh, and so we've rebranded our department to reflect that focus on the scientific process that underlies our understanding of the mind. So the the thread, the vein that weaves through all of the classes in our curriculum is really the scientific process. We are – each class, of course, focuses on a topic in psychology, so personality or, or abnormal psychology or cognitive psychology. But within each course, we are interested in hitting hard the scientific – techniques that have shaped our understanding of that content area. Uh, So in many of the classes, students are expected to handle data and uh, reacquaint themselves with techniques for analyzing and interpreting data in an experimental setting. Uh, They're also asked to generate their own experiments or at least devise techniques to test hypotheses that are relevant in, in whatever domain 
It is. So, so it's really the science that's the thread through our curriculum, uh, far more so than sort of mental health issues, even though you get that along the way. Right. So, so someone who finishes college with uh, such a degree, then w- what are they uh, able to do aside from what we think of, you're right, as the most obvious thing is to become a, a clinical psychologist? Yeah. What are the other opportunities that are out there then? So I would, I would say the majority of students who get degrees in psychology don't end up pursuing higher degrees in psychology. And that has historically been the case at every institution. Um, And so uh, equipping students with skills to design experiments and manipulate data, uh, those are skills that can speak to almost any career that you could move into. And they're skills that are highly desirable in many careers. So um, I think that's something that can make students quite marketable. Interesting. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Anthony Barnhart, who is Assistant Professor of Psychological Science at Carthage, and uh, he is the primary organizer of an event that's going to be coming up on Saturday, October 21st, something called uh, the Carthage Celebration of Mind. And this happens to be an event that touches on this other aspect of Anthony Barnhart's own life, namely the fact that for many, many years he has been uh, a professional magician, in fact, an award-winning uh, <laughs> magician. Um, I think before we delve into some of that magic stuff, I think we need to uh, talk a little further about what happens on, on Saturday, October 21st, sure. and and the person to whom this event is, in a sense, uh, a tribute. Yes. Tell us about Martin Gardner. So, yes, uh, the... The complete title is Martin Gardner's Celebration of Mind, uh, mm. and these events happen all around the world around August twenty, October 21st, which was uh, the birthday of a fellow named Martin Gardner. Uh, Martin was famous for a number of things, um, probably most notably for his long-running column in Scientific American magazine. Uh, he had a column in there for decades, uh, and he is known for popularizing recreational mathematics through this column in Scientific American. Uh, Even if you don't know Martin's name, you have definitely been touched by his legacy. Uh, He was the first person to publish uh, images from M.C. Escher in the United States. Uh, You've probably seen like the impossible staircase image or things like that from Escher. Uh, Well, Martin Gardner was the one who first published those in Scientific American magazine. He's also a magician uh, who has many books uh, that he wrote on the topic of magic uh, and a a major figure in the modern skepticism movement. Uh, I would call him one of the founders of modern skepticism alongside names like uh, James the Amazing Randy and uh, Paul Kurtz and some others. Uh, So And, okay, the other thing that he's famous for uh, is he wrote The Annotated Alice in Wonderland. So if you're a, so he was also a Lewis Carroll scholar. He was really a Renaissance man who had such broad expertise uh, and a prolific writer uh, that these events uh, honor his legacy and and try to reintroduce uh, uh, college students to the legacy of Martin Gardner, someone who they may not be familiar with. Right. So you say that events like this happen all over the world? You mean at colleges and universities all over the world? Not only at colleges and universities, but uh, 
different types of organizations sponsor these. Um, there's there are no rules to who can organize a mm-hmm. celebration of mind event, but there is uh, 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 a gathering for gardener organization that tries to spearhead these and and provide support for for continuing uh, to to speak about Martin Gardner. Right. So what will be happening at Carthage's event then on Saturday the 21st? So this is our third annual Celebration of Mind event, and this is the first time that we have a theme for the event. Uh, since since it's falling so close to Halloween this year, I thought it might be fun to um, devote the event to spooky science and skepticism. Uh, so I there will be four speakers. Um, uh Sarah Jensen, Dr. Sarah Jensen from the Department of Mathematics at Carthage College will be presenting uh, something about uh, mysterious mathematics. So mm-hmm. some, of these, some of these unusual patterns that appear in math that speak to principles in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be giving a talk on the, the lurid history of parapsychology research. Uh, there are some some really dark stories there and some really bad science. Mm. <laughs> so it's, there's a lot to discuss there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my friend Jeff Wagg will be coming up from Chicago. He has an organization called the College of Curiosity, which is all about uh, reinvigorating adults' curiosity for the natural world. And uh, we, we do a lot to focus on children's curiosity. We often neglect adults' curiosity. So uh, – he will be – I don't exactly know what he'll be doing, but he'll be doing something that is certain to be great and that's certain to make us all uh, – in, increase our wonder for the natural world. Uh, and finally, uh, we have a guest named Peter Bois who is a well-known magician who's on tour right now. Uh, he most recently appeared on the Penn & Teller Fool Us show. Uh, and he is a skeptic and magician who does these sort of spooky seance magic shows. So he's mm. going to – talk at my event about a skeptic's approach to putting together this kind of ghost-based show. Uh, And afterwards, uh, he'll be putting on his Summoning Spirits show in the the Student Union Auditorium at Carthage at 8 p.m. So after the celebration of mind, I'm hoping everyone will move over to the Student Union Auditorium to see his his spooky show. Sounds like fun. So again, this is Saturday, uh, October 21st. So so the word skepticism is right in the title of the event, and it's sprung up several times as you've described the event and some of these participants, mm-hmm. and as you've described the career of Martin Gardner, who is kind of the inspiration behind the, the whole notion of this uh, mm-hmm. event. So explain to our listeners the kind of skepticism that you are talking about when we are talking about this movement of skepticism. Yeah. So I think um, – so I, I sh- certainly should not speak for the whole skeptics movement, but uh, I'll give you my perspective on on what skepticism is. Uh, I believe skepticism to be a worldview, uh, a, a, the, an optimal way to understand the world around us. So I think inherent in skepticism is a belief that our assumptions about the world should be guided by science, that science is among the best ways to understand the natural world around us and that invoking explanations um, involving the supernatural uh, should be a last resort, that we should always rule out as many natural explanations as we can before invoking paranormal, which are ultimately things that can't be measured or tested. Uh, So ultimately, skepticism, I think, is about uh, 
the principle of parsimony or uh, Occam's razor, that the simplest explanation for a phenomenon is likely to be the best one. Hmm. Uh, and the simplest explanations for things around us are natural explanations. Interesting. It's, it's interesting the way you're using the word simple there because uh, because I would certainly agree with that. I think sometimes people come up with uh, explanations that are easier. And it's like a, there's a difference between something being an easy explanation sure. and a simple explanation. I, I think um, maybe when you say easy, you mean emotionally comfortable? Yes, or convenient. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah, yes, emotionally convenient. Uh, uh, explanations that require no further questions to be asked, right? Uh, and, right. And, yeah, that's and, a good way to put it. And this is something that, that Martin Gardner um, – he definitely had qualms about this. So so he was a prolific skeptic and he wrote books about um oh, I don't know, all sorts of all sorts of amazing things. So like dousing the phenomenon where you try to find water sources by by walking around with a bent metal rod, uh all sorts of placebo effects and things like this. Um but he also admitted um that he was unwilling to apply his skepticism to religion. Mm. Uh he uh, he was and and he was religious and uh, and fully acknowledged that it was because his emo- because of his emotions because it had this emotional resonance for him that he couldn't he couldn't step away from right so in other words this is a movement that probably in the hands of some is involves being skeptical of everything including religion that smacks of something sure. beyond the natural mm-hmm. but but not necessarily and and he who was in a sense the godfather of the movement or one of mm-hmm. them uh for him it it did not involve that's that. right yes I, I would say um yeah there are lots of different flavors of skeptics uh and some are willing to move that skepticism into religion uh many are not i mean skepticism isn't necessarily about religion it's just about demanding evidence for extreme claims uh, so if you're making claims that do invoke religion, well, then 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 a skeptic might might be concerned about that. So faith healing might be one of those places where a skeptic would impede on religion, demanding some evidence for the efficacy of faith healing, right. for example. So in other words, someone might make a choice of, I mean, all of this is fine, but when religion steps across this line and starts doing this, uh, then about that you might – you might elect yeah. to be very skeptical. Yeah, so. I, I would say that the modern skeptics movement has is really concerned with protecting people who have incomplete information. Uh, so, for example, the James Randi Foundation has made it its uh, its primary focus to keep people from being exploited by pseudo psychics. Mm. So when people. Um, when people go through a painful life experience, like the loss of a loved one, oftentimes that makes them vulnerable to being preyed on by people who don't have their best interests in mind. Uh, and there's all sorts of scientific evidence to show that when we're in one of these highly emotional states of bereavement or loss, that we are more apt to fall prey to um, illusions, illusory perceptions, to find patterns where there are no patterns. And that's exactly what uh, pseudopsychics are counting on, for you to, to find meaning in their words that isn't actually there. 
So they produce all these words, all these predictions about you. And when you are in this state, this bereaved state, you're apt to pick out the things that have meaning for you, that resonate for you, and ignore the things that don't make sense. And so you you fall hook, line, and sinker for for the psychic's uh, the psychic's reading and end up giving them lots of money. <laughs> wow. It's a very, very scary thing. So, so skepticism, uh, probably all of us, to some extent at least, in some aspects of our life, need to be more skeptical, mm-hmm. uh, more careful. It's interesting, the word skeptical uh, or a skeptic, there's, there can be kind of a negative connotation to that. It, it sounds like somebody who's kind of crabby or, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, uh, or uh, you know, not open to sure, life's wonders sure. or whatever. It's just sort of funny about the, the emotional triggers that, that, that a very simple word will, will, yeah. will, will, will give us. I, I think ultimately um, if a skeptic is doing it right, <laughs> they sh- their beliefs should change with the evidence. And but but skeptics are humans too, and so we fall we fall into these traps of being married to our our ideas and resistant to evidence that that runs counter to them. Right. Um, so we all uh, skepticism is ultimately about being open minded about what the truth is and letting the data guide your beliefs. Mm. We're speaking with Anthony Barnhart, Assistant Professor of Psychological Science at Carthage College, and we are talking about uh, an event coming up at Carthage on Saturday, October 21st, that uh, springs out of several different areas of expertise for uh, Professor Barnhart, including the fact that he is a professional and award-winning magician. In fact, the author of a book called Slate of Hand, or slates of hand, slights. Slights uh, of hand. Oh, yeah, right. I'm not an author. I was just a contributor to ah, it. Okay. I was uh, a character in the book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then the subtitle: What the neuroscience of magic reveals about our everyday deceptions. I, I wanted to mention the book because it uh, talks about uh, or touches on this kind of intriguing overlap between the world of magic and the world of skepticism, mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, when one is doing magic, and of course we have that in quotes, of course, because uh, in a sense, you know, the magic you do is, f- at least in, 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 in one measure, you know, f- fake magic. Uh, I mean, it isn't really magic, or it's, mm-hmm. it's a different kind of magic than magic magic. I don't know how to even <laughs> talk about it. But, but, but on the other hand, you're so interested in this thing called skepticism. Mm-hmm. So you are, as a magician, sort of in the business of sort of testing people's mm-hmm. skepticism. I think you're right. Um, so, so the techniques that magicians use are identical to the techniques that that pseudopsychics use. The difference is, uh, as a fellow named Jamie Ian Swiss says, magicians are honest liars. They <laughs> say they're going to lie to you, and then they do. Mm. Uh, and so, so partially, uh, experiencing magic is about uh, maintaining your skepticism. But also finding that there's no alternative explanation for what you're experiencing but magic. So mm. you're seeing things that you cannot explain while also knowing that, ah, but magic couldn't be the source, right? Mm. So it's about uh, – uh, some philosophers say that magic is about this this combination of beliefs about what's true about the world, that that magic doesn't really happen – and they call them a leaves. This, this, so a leaves and b leaves. You right. see, uh, a leaves. This 
this feeling that you have that there is no other explanation but magic. So it's these two things colliding with each other that makes for a good magic performance. Hmm. So when people when people come into a magic show, I do not want them to take off their skeptics hat. I want them to keep it on. It'll make the magic even better. <laughs> right, right. Well, and and it it's a mark of 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 accomplishment on your part if <laughs> if you are able in a sense to surmount someone's healthy skepticism. Sure. So tell us a little bit about how you got started at the age of seven. What kind of magic were you doing and and, and, and how were you doing it at that yeah. early? I mean, this is pre-internet, I That's think. That's right. It yeah. was, yes. Uh, so I wish this was a better story. I always wish it was a better story. <laughs> uh, when I was seven, I was on a swim team. And the coach just happened to be a magician, and he started giving uh, beginners lessons at the local rec center, uh, and I took them and enjoyed it, and and it it blossomed from there. I was lucky to be in the location that I was in. Uh, I'm from a teeny tiny town in Illinois called Milledgeville, Mm. which is near Dixon, Ronald Mm. Reagan's hometown, if that helps. Mm. Uh, And um, I was relatively close to Rockford, Illinois, where there was a wonderful magician and magic shop, a guy named Rich Goff, uh, who did much of my early training Hmm. uh, and who was a real uh, sleight-of-hand master uh, and really shaped me as a performer and and gave me the tools to move forward and learn a lot more. Uh, I ended up going to to Tannen's Magic Camp for a couple years out in Long Island, New York. Uh, There's a documentary on Netflix called Magic Camp. That's at my Magic Camp. Hmm. Um, And that's what what pushed me into making making this – I guess sort of a career, a mini career, if you will. I ended up putting together an act uh, for the competition scene. There, there's a magic competition scene. <laughs> they happen mm. all around the all around the world. And so, while I was in high school, that was one of the big things that I did was traveling around and competing in these competitions with my seven minute act. Mm. Uh, and and what would be some of the sort of tricks that you did, especially at that time in your life? Yeah, so I was um, really excited about the theatrical side of magic. Hmm. Um, I was interested in how magic could tell a story. Uh, so so independently of the actual tricks you're doing, how can you weave together a narrative and and entertain an audience with this stuff? And so the act that I competed with uh, was a period piece set in the nineteen. 1920s at a bus stop uh, and it was a kind of a guy gets girl sort of thing where uh, they run into each other at this bus stop and he's a magician and he's trying to trying to impress her uh, with this series of tricks uh, so it was things like um, a floating cane and cards that appeared out of the air and and multiplying billiard balls and things like this that would have been of that era uh, and of course, in the end, it turned out that she was a, also a magician and was a better magician than me, and hmm. showed me up in the end. But oh, it, boy. it all worked out for the best. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you began doing this, or, or as as anybody begins doing magic, what are sort of the essential tools that yeah. are most Im- important? Or maybe another way to phrase it would be: What are the most significant gifts mm-hmm. that come in handy? For somebody who wants to do this, for instance, is really good physical coordination. I mean, f- fine motor skills, 
Is that a, a, a really important component in being able to do this well? Uh, it all depends. So there are lots of different flavors of magic, um, some of which require more dexterity than others. So I was trained in sleight of hand. A lot of what I did was this this manual dexterity stuff uh, that requires you to give up your childhood and sit alone <laughs> in a room with a deck of cards for hours on end. Uh, so if you're not willing to give up your childhood, there are other opportunities. Um, there are styles of magic that uh, that don't involve this kind of sleight of hand. And that tends to be the larger stuff. So anything you would see on a stage would tend to require less sleight of hand, less mm. manual dexterity. So as the magic tricks get bigger, this boy, magicians would maybe be angry that I'm saying this, the amount of skill required to perform them decreases. Interesting. <laughs> but I guess the skill changes. So whereas with close-up magic, you have to be entertaining and have dexterity, the way that you're entertaining has to be maximized for, for stage performance. So it becomes more theatrical, perhaps. Right. So in a sense, we're talking about uh, when a trick is done right before you, I mean, like on the table right yes. in front of you versus on a relatively distant stage That's right. than uh, the matter of hiding things or whatever. <laughs> it be, be becomes kind of a, a different matter, although you're hiding bigger things. So. That's right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we delve into some more specifics, can you give us a sense of the historical scope of this? I mean, how long have we, through, through the course of human history, mm-hmm. had people that we would think of as magicians, I mean, who engaged in this kind of thing? Uh, there was never, when, as long as there have been humans, there have been magicians. Uh, people say it's the second oldest profession. I'll let you make <laughs> guesses about what the first oldest is. Huh. Um, there are Egyptian hieroglyphics that show magicians performing. Um, and so, so these techniques of deception have been around for millennia. Uh, but it wasn't until the late 1800s that, that scientists first began considering the techniques of magicians and considering that magicians uh, may have insights into the mind that we haven't considered. Um, so right now in the, the scientific study of magic, there's a little bit of controversy going on. There are, uh, many magicians feel that the, the, the scientists are borrowing more from them than the magicians can borrow from the scientists. Mm. And that is 100% correct because the magicians have a big head start on us, right? Like mm. their ideas have been developed for millennia and psychology as a discipline is 150 years old if we're generous. Um, so, so the magicians definitely have a head start in their thinking, and, and science has to catch up. Right. Uh, I want to mention to our listeners that uh, you have a little magic trick that you are inviting uh, listeners to do, and mm-hmm. we'll do that in just a few minutes, but it would involve having... Three to six coins. Any coins will do. Just whatever coins you find in the couch... Three to six of them. Okay, and grab just, them and we'll do something fun. And they need to be have have heads and tails. <laughs> yes. So you know standard yep. standard coins. We'll 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 do the trick yep. and we'll we'll so to speak and we'll do that in uh, in a couple of, of minutes. All right. So um, what would you say are the standard tenets of deception that are involved in doing this kind of magic? I mean, what are the basic ways in which a human being can be deceived and and what sort of 
wealth of technique spring from yeah. those those tenants. So uh, here's the dirty little secret of magic. Uh, magicians rarely deceive you. Uh, most of the deception that happens in a magic show is self-deception. It's the audience convincing themselves that one thing is happening while mm. another actually is. So I, uh, I regularly teach a course at Carthage on the cognitive science of magic. And one of the themes of that class is that magicians are exploiting psychological tendencies that you use every day to survive in the world but that get misapplied in the context of a magic show. Hmm. Uh, so let me think of let me think of one that'll be uh, easy to talk about on the radio. Um, okay, so uh, one of the psychological principles that I think appears constantly in magic uh, is something known as good continuation. So let's imagine you see a, a dog walking behind a picket fence, and you only see little bits and pieces of the dog. Uh, you still assume that there's a complete dog there, even though you don't have access to the whole dog's body. You only see these little slices of the dog. Through the spaces. Through the slats in the fence. In the fence. Uh, but your your brain is able to very quickly combine those slices of dog to perceive a complete dog there. And that's something we take for granted. Uh, that's a principle known as good continuation. And it happens automatically uh, because you have all this experience in the world with things being covered up by other things. Well, in the context of a magic show, magicians will expect you to do this perceptual filling in in contexts where it's inappropriate. So let's take, for example, a classic illusion, sawing a woman in half. Uh, if you've ever seen that that trick, a woman is put in the box, and her head is sticking out of one end of the box, and her feet are sticking out of the other end of the box. Supposedly. The, supposedly. <laughs> the trick only works if the audience fills in the body that connects that head with those feet. Uh, if for a moment they consider that maybe the feet belong to a different body than the head, the trick falls apart. So magicians have to find ways to encourage the audience to apply this rule of good continuation. And they found all sorts of great ways to do so. Uh, in the context of sawing a woman in half, they have these little doors on the side of the box that they'll open up so you can see the side of her leg and the side of her arm. And that doesn't preclude alternative interpretations, but it's enough of a little suggestion that the audience then just automatically fills in the body. Mm. Um, and... Uh, Mind you, I'm not saying that the feet belong to a different body than the head. <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> that, that would be wrong. That would be deceitful. <laughs> well, and I'm being honest. They, they, they often do not right. belong to different bodies. So when someone is learning the craft of magic, I mean, I assume at, at, at the age of seven, you weren't being taught the principle of good continuation, for instance. At, at what point does that tend to enter the sort of the lexicon of, yeah. of, of, of this business or, or, or does it ever? Is it is it psychological scientists looking from outside who, who yeah. to generate these terms and so on? I would say it's more the latter. Um, so one of the complexities of doing this is that magicians don't need to know why their illusions work. They just need to know how they work, right? Mm. Uh, so magicians... Um, unless they are like the right flavor of magician, a sort of magic theorist who deeply considers the principles behind the magic, most magicians don't consider the the how of or, or the I'm sorry the why of their magic tricks. Um, 
so like this principle of good continuation, this is a thing that me as a psych- psychological scientist has has used to explain this thing that shows up a lot in magic. Um, I think the places where magicians, like the average magician, talks most like a scientist is in things that involve manipulation of the audience's attention. Hmm. So some of my first work in the science of magic has explored how magicians control your attention. Hmm. And it's been a really natural place for magicians and scientists to interact because it turns out we use the same analogies. Uh, Both scientists and magicians use the analogy of a spotlight of attention that you move around your environment. And magicians have all these intuitions about how you can effectively choreograph the audience's spotlight of attention so that they're looking at what you – attending to what you want them to be attending to yeah. and ignoring the shenanigans that allow the, a magic trick to occur. Huh. Um, so magicians have really deep insights about the, the, the processes of attention and how they can be hacked. Hmm. When you look at uh, well-known magicians in days of yore versus uh, mm-hmm. even even now, are there particular magicians whom you especially admire and maybe even emulate? Uh, sure. So, in fact, I one of my favorite magicians of all time happens to have been born and raised in Kenosha. Really? A fellow named Norm Nielsen, uh, hmm. who um, apparently... Uh, there used to be a, a rather well-known bakery in Kenosha, Nielsen Bakery, and he was to take over this family visit business, and then he became a very famous magician, and the business disappeared. I think huh. that this would have been probably in the 50s, okay. um, and he uh, ultimately moved to, moved to Paris and performed – uh, in one of the cabarets there for for dec- for a long long time, and he had this very theatrical stage act that was all themed around music. So he would float a grand piano while he was playing it. Hmm. Uh, uh, he has a very famous floating violin act, the violin that plays itself while it's floating. Uh, and his style of magic was really influential on me. He now lives in California somewhere. Um, the magicians that would be most well known to to non magicians whom I have great respect for are Penn and Teller. Um, mm. They are among the most creative magicians working today, uh, and uh, I, I respect everything that they do. Uh, they are they're really changing the shaping the public face of magic, uh, and I encourage listeners to seek out their show on the. What's the oh, – I'm trying to think of the TV <laughs> channel. Um, I, I can't come up with a TV channel, but it's called Penn & Teller Fool Us. Ah. And the whole, the whole premise of the show is magicians come on, and if they can fool Penn & Teller, they win a prize. Wow. And so it's some of the best magic you've ever seen, and, um, and occasionally Penn & Teller do get fooled. Mm. Interesting. By the way, on uh, I believe it was an episode of This American Life – not too long ago, there was an episode, and I think one of them appeared. Yeah. But it was... It was uh, Teller, the one who doesn't normally talk. Okay. <laughs> and they were talking about this extraordinary magic trick when, a, when supposedly the Statue of Liberty... Yes. Was, mm-hmm. was, was, ...was made to disappear. Yeah. And it's a very, very uh, interesting look behind the scenes and a, a deep investigation of, 
of how that was accomplished yes. or what, if anything, was accomplished yes. <laughs> uh, that night. So I, I encourage people to seek that out yeah. in the archives of This that American great. Life. Uh, I think it's time for us to uh, to do this little trick you're talking about. All right. I hope everybody's grabbed some coins. Uh, Gregory, how many coins do you want? Three to six coins. I'll take four. All right. You get four. Here you go. All right. uh, so, I need and, my glasses. And I'll too. play along. Uh, I'll take, I don't know, I'll take three. So we're going to play a game of heads or tails. Uh, I'm going to play against you, Gregory, and everyone who's listening. And I'm going to control chance through the power of my voice, and I'm going to beat all of you. Uh, mm. So uh, just to foreshadow things, I'm going to go with heads. Heads is going to be the winner for me. And a million dollars will be at stake. Not anymore because <laughs> I'm not interested in abusing my power, Gregory. Uh, so those at home could cheat and not send me the money when I win. But, but be careful. It's not worth harming the honor of your reputation for That's a vulgar right. million dollars. Uh, so I hope you'll all send me the money if I win, uh, when I win. <laughs> okay. So you need three, four, five, or six coins. Completely up to you. Three or more. Uh, I want you to lay them out on the table in front of you, all with the heads side down. So make sure it's all tails facing Mm -hmm. up. So we're going to go through a process of random flipping and then eliminate coins until only one remains, which I predict will be heads up. So anyone who wants to right now should turn two coins over. And anyone who doesn't want to, don't do a thing. This way, some of you will have two heads in view. Some will have none. Completely up to you. Now, whomever wants to, turn over another two coins to bring them heads up or leave everything as is. So at the end of this initial turning, you should have an even number of coins heads up, two or four, or no heads at all. All right. So from here on out, Gregory gets to make the decisions for everyone. Every time he says turn, we have to turn over one coin. You can turn over the same coin or you can change. You can do anything you want because you have different numbers of coins, remember? So some will turn a single coin several times. Others will turn various coins once or twice. Uh, the only rule is that you turn over only one coin every time you hear Greg command you to turn. Okay. All right. So remember, I'm betting you will end with one coin that's heads up, and I bet a million dollars against each of you. So <laughs> let's start. Uh, would you like to, to turn one, so... Greg? Turn. Turn. All right. Everybody turn. All right. Greg, you want to turn again? Turn. All right. He says turn. You can turn any coin. You want to turn again? Turn. (laughs) Turn another one. All right. What do you think, Greg? You want to keep going? All right. He says turn. And turn. Turn. All right. Okay. So now, whomever wants to should turn over two coins at the same time. Whomever doesn't want to, don't do anything. So some of you then will have turned over the coins more times than others. It makes no difference. I'll beat all of you anyway. (laughs) Okay. So now's where the rubber meets the road, Gregory. You have a choice to make. With your left hand and everyone at home, cover one of the coins, whichever one you want. It's up to you. Do not look at that coin again until I tell you to. So from the coins that remain in view, I want you to push aside with your free hand the coins that show tails, leaving only those that show heads. Some will have one or more showing heads, some none. Mm -hmm. All right. So now if you don't have any coins showing heads, you have nothing to do. 
But those of you who do have coins that are heads up right now, push one of them aside and at the same time, turn over the coin that's under your left hand without looking at it. Say that instruction one more time. All right. So you're going to – if you have a coin that's heads up, push it to the side. And as you're doing so, turn over the coin that's under your hand without looking at it if you can. Mm -hmm. And continue to do this with any other coins that are left heads up. In other words, every time you remove a coin that shows heads, turn over the one that's under your left hand. Hmm. All right. I'm going to wait a second because some people listening probably have more coins in front of them. Okay. So we're done here. Obviously, some will have the coin under their hand with the head side up, others with the tail side showing because some turn them more times than others. And some chose to cover one coin showing heads while others covered a coin showing tails. Some turned it over more times than others. You see, this was all quite a random process, and you made those decisions yourself. Remember, I said I would go with heads. If someone has heads under their hand, I beat them. I'm going to look at my coin first. Don't look at yours yet. Oh, mine shows heads. So I owe myself a million dollars. It makes me richer and poorer at the same time. Now, everybody, lift your hands. What did you get, Gregory? I have heads. You had heads. I win. Everybody owes me a million dollars. Remember, you made all the choices here. You turned over coins uh, using your own free will. Imagine if just one time you turned over a different coin, you may have won. Mm. But thanks for your honesty and for the immediate transfer of money into my account or uh, better yet, cash, because I don't trust any of you, dear listeners. (laughs) (laughs) So. (laughs) It was was longish, but uh, (laughs) that's that's actually derived from a Martin Gardner effect that he published in Scientific American decades ago. Really? Yes. So uh, we just have a couple of minutes left, but... Uh, when a, when a psychologist, when a someone studying psychological science is looking at a given magic trick uh, for the sake of understanding mm-hmm. human psychology, what sorts of things would be examined in you know in a given trick or in a given experiment? Oh, so um, well, let me give you let me give you a quick example of one of the things that I study in the lab. So. Uh, both magicians and psychologists know a lot about how attention operates in space, like that, that spotlight metaphor. Mm. We know a little bit less about how attention operates in time. So perhaps a more apt analogy is that of a blinking spotlight that's sporadically sampling information from the world. Magicians have these things they call offbeats. These are moments where they can make you briefly turn off your attention. And these offbeats are mostly unknown to psychology. So I am exploring some of these ideas from the world of magic to see whether they can be integrated with formal models of attention. One of these things that magicians do is they create a rhythm. Hmm. It could be a visual rhythm. It could be an auditory rhythm using their their speech because speech is rhythmic typically. And if they want to do something that you don't detect, they put it in between the beats of this rhythm. Mm. Uh, They have this assumption that attention aligns itself with that rhythm and that you're relaxing attention in between beats. And so in the laboratory, we are among the first to show that the mere presence of an auditory rhythm, just a tone that plays at a consistent pace – leads to this phenomenon where an, a visual event that happens in between beats is harder for people to detect. Right. Interesting. And then I suppose by the same token, then understanding something like that could be applicable to, for instance, uh, the way 
some sort of announcement is made in a train station or something in terms of what are people most apt to pay attention Absolutely. to. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that my mind always goes to uh, in the real world on this is um, uh, oh, what do you call the people at the airports that monitor flight paths and all that stuff? Oh, the air, air traffic, traffic controllers. controllers. Uh, those displays that they're looking at have these planes moving around. But it's always blinking on and off, right? Mm. It's creating this visual rhythm, and their attention is likely aligning itself with that rhythm, which also means that if anything happens outside of that beat, they're going to be far less likely to detect it. Mm. I don't know if that has real implications for air traffic controllers, but it's something that always pops into my mind when I'm thinking about these and things. And one of a million things that, uh, that, uh, that scientists like yourself uh, continue to study and explore. Sure. How fascinating is all of this? Well, we want to remind people that uh, this can be explored further in this wonderful event coming up at Carthage on Saturday, October 21st, the uh, Martin Gardner's Celebration of Mind, uh, 5.30 to, uh, to uh, 7.30, and then a seance magic show that <laughs> evening at 8 o'clock at Carthage College. Is there a charge? There is no charge. Oh, so people, and there will be snacks. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Anthony Barnhart will be there, uh, assistant professor of psychological science. This was great fun. I'm so glad we got to do this. I hope you'll come back. Thank you, Gregory. Tomorrow on The Morning Show, a look at American heavyweight boxing champions with author Paul Best.